I am suddenly blinking quite a bit. I don't know what. You haven't been self-conscious about it. You haven't taken any birth control pills today, have you? Not as far as I know. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by which direction I am supposed to be looking when I cross the street here in London. So I, Old Blighty. You guys have both been here, right? Yeah, look right. Well, so they, they have signs on the ground which tell you look left or look right or look both ways, but I find... Whichever way it tells me to look, I, I in, seem to always look the wrong way. I don't know what's going on. Anyway, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the uh, Boston University School of Public Health, and I am here, as always, with Chris Gill and Donthea from the Department of Global Health. Hello. Hey, Matt. Hey, Don. You still there? You look like you're, hey, uh, you're having some issues <laughs> there with your glasses. Heavily. He's cleaning his glasses. Yeah, cleaning my glasses. Okay. So we are, as always, well, at least two of you are there in the godly studio. I am here in beautiful, sunny London, which everyone Thank knows godly. is the sunniest place on earth. Um, I did want to mention that I have a I have a friend who listens to this podcast who was concerned that we were going to stop doing the podcast while I was away for uh, my sabbatical, and he, he was particularly concerned that there wasn't going to be anyone to remind him every week that we are in the godly studio or that Nick Guler does sound and editing. So apparently there mm. are phrases that we say on each of these podcasts that you guys make fun of me for that are apparently very meaningful to some people. So he's, he's no longer a friend anyway. He's a mate. <laughs> That's right. So it is now officially winter. Uh, I know it may be cold outside and some of you have freezing pipes and all of the things that go on, at least in a New England winter, they don't seem to go on here. But I, I have found a place that will warm you right up, and that place is it's the Population, the population Health Exchange Health website. Exchange. I knew so it. the I Population knew Health it. Exchange website is where you can go to find lifelong public health learning tools and programs, as well as classes. I strongly encourage you to head there and check it out. It's at www.pophealthex.org. You can find this podcast there, as well as many other population health learning programs and tools. And as a reminder, each week we remind you, or two weeks, fortnight, fortnightly we remind you to go ahead and give us a rating on iTunes and all your major podcast sites, and that'll help other people find us. So now onto the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to look at a study about a new approach to treating peanut allergies, which potentially could be quite promising. Then in our second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to be talking about using artificial intelligence in the process of peer review and what that might tell us about the future of our jobs in general. And then in our amazing and amusing, we will get into some things that have made us laugh out loud or are just made our days a bit better. So let's get into it. In our first segment, segment one, we are going to get into a article that looked at a new way to treat peanut allergy. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and the study was titled AR101, Oral Immunotherapy for Peanut Allergy, and wasn't published under the name of, of any specific authors, but was instead published under a corporate authorship. I think that's what you call it, uh, or group authorship. Uh, so it was published on behalf of the Palisades Group of Clinical Investigators. So here are some of the headlines. There were quite a few of them on this one. New treatment may be, quote-unquote, breakthrough for peanut allergies, says CBS News. A pill to treat peanut allergies is getting closer to reality, but a new study shows the drug 
can have some harsh side effects, says Business Insider. Experimental treatment may desensitize allergic kids to peanuts, says Yahoo News. Time Magazine says a new peanut allergy drug could be a promising treatment for children. And MSN says, turns out the secret to beating a peanut allergy is peanuts. So there you go. Uh, so Don, can you can you start us off and take us through this study? Tell us what they what they did and what they found. Sure, Matt. This actually is not a new uh, a, a new therapeutic. Um, what it, what it's doing is it's basing an intervention on actually many years of of research in 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 immunology where. Um, we know that if you give small amounts in increasing doses to an individual who has an allergy to that particular item, you can produce something called desensitization. So you're, in, in, in essence, getting the immune system to sort of ignore the fact that these, um, the, this, this substance is, is present. And the, there's a company called A-Immune, which has now developed very controlled ways of making oral doses of whatever the particular an antigen is. And I think this is their first product, but they're also working on walnut allergies. So stay tuned for those. But peanut allergy is the one that's the, by far the, the, the most severe, the most potentially lethal, and the most common, I think, of all of the um, food allergies that um, Americans or people all over the world face. Somewhere I read that there were 15 million people who are, have um, peanut allergy in the United States, 17 million in the um, EU and about 1.7 million kids. And it can be very, very debilitating. I and mean, people, people can be, um, get, go into very severe anaphylaxis and shock with an unstable vascular system with just very, very small amounts of, of peanut allergy. So these authors sought to take this product that was produced by Amune and um, put it to the test in the clinic. And so what they did was they mounted an international randomized double-blind placebo-controlled phase three, that's a mouthful, trial to evaluate the efficacy and safety of this product, AR101, in children and adults with peanut allergy. So this was done at 66 sites across 10 countries in the United States and, um, and Europe. The inclusion criteria were people who were four years old to, I think it was four, 55 years old, mm -hmm. um, but they really focused in on the on the uh, uh, smaller group of um, individuals who were four to 17 years of age, thinking that that's the that's the age group in which this um, is is a much bigger problem. So the inclusion criteria were you had to be within that age, you had to have a known peanut allergy, you had to have a positive IgE. Um, on a blood test, and you had to have a positive skin test when they tested you by scraping your skin with a little bit of peanut, and you would develop a, a hive in, in, in essence. Their pre-specified primary analysis population was, as I said, these four to 17 year um, of age individuals. And what they did is at screening, they um, challenged individuals with their reaction to a small amount, uh, about a third of a peanut's worth of um, peanut. And then they, based on individuals um, demonstrating that, in fact, they um, did have that allergy, it had to, be, had to be shown, they did a three-to-one assignment of the um, peanut product to placebo, and they did a dose escalation of 0 0.5, 1, 10, 20, and 100 milligram doses. And in essence, what they do is they, they, they gave individuals the first couple of doses in succession under observation in the study office, and then every two weeks, the individuals would come back and under observation, they would increase the dose until they got to 100, I think it was 100 milligrams. And that would be the dose that these individuals would take every day continuously during the course of the study, and it lasted for 12 months. 
Then what they did at the end of the trial was to do what was called an exit trial visit, where they again did a double-blind placebo-controlled challenge, same as before, with increasing doses sequentially over a short period of time. But they also looked at single doses of 300, 600, and 1,000 milligrams. And then they, they basically assessed the reactions that this would elicit in these individuals. And then later on in the analysis, they would, they would assess that based on what group they were in. And the reactions were assessed blindly by a physician experienced in knowing all the manifestations of peanut allergy. Their primary efficacy endpoint was the proportion of 4 to 17-year-olds who had a response, who were able to tolerate the 600 milligram dose, which was 1,043 milligrams total, because remember, they were giving little bits all the way up to 600 milligrams, so the total amount was um, 1,043, with no dose-limiting symptoms. They could have symptoms, but it couldn't be severe enough to make them stop escalating the dose at that exit challenge. And then they had some secondary outcomes with um, different age groups and with different amounts of challenge. And they set up a 15% difference in response rate as being meaningful. So as far as results were concerned, they had uh, they screened a bunch and ended up enrolling 555. And as I said, it was a three-to-one ratio. So there were 499 who were between four and seven years of age. 372 got the drug, got the the, the allergen, the um, the drug, and 124 got placebo. The baseline was, I thought, pretty well balanced for sex and age and the baseline tests that they performed on these individuals when they started this out, the IgE and the wheel test. Um, And 72% of these individuals had a history of peanut anaphylaxis, which blew me away because that's, that's really the most severe manifestations of a peanut allergy. So I, I think it's pretty remarkable that these people volunteered to be in this test and would be subjecting themselves, yeah. 70% of which had previously had anaphylaxis. So the median toler- tolerated dose at screening was only 10 milligrams. Um, as far as the efficacy outcome was concerned, it was, I thought, pretty remarkable. There were 250 people who took the, uh, the medication or the peanut allergen, and 67% of them were able to ingest 600 milligrams at the exit interview with only mild symptoms versus 4% in the placebo group, which is a 63% difference. There were, in terms of needing rescue epinephrine uh, as these as the signs and symptoms developed during this exit interview, they needed to be rescued with um, a shot of adrenaline. That was necessary in 10% of the uh, individuals in the active arm, and um, 53%, fully 53% of the uh, people who got placebo needed an epinephrine um, rescue. And the total epinephrine used during the scale-up and maintenance period, so the 12 months um, while they were in, in the study, was 14% in the active group versus 6.5% in the placebo group. And 11% in the active group withdrew, and 2.4% in the placebo group withdrew, largely because of um, some of these these manifestations. And there were some secondary endpoints, um, which had similar findings. And there were some uh, serious adverse events, which amounted to 5.6% in the active group and 1.6% in the placebo. So, the you know, my, my reading of the results were that this was a really pretty profound effect um, in terms of dose escalation and the maintenance for um, meaningful symptomatic um, allergic reactions. Yeah, I, I just want to repeat this because I, I just think it bears repeating, which is that the that what you said was there was a a sixty three percent difference 
between the intervention yeah. and the control arms. That's an absolute difference. That's not a relative. That's not a relative right, risk right. of one point six, right? Yeah, That's not huge. a sixty percent. That is huge. a sixty-three percent absolute difference. I mean, that is that is astounding. You uh, don't see that very often. Assuming assuming yeah. this is you know this is a meaningful effect, but that's a that's an astounding effect size. Chris, give us your uh, give us your take on this study. Sure, couple uh, interesting points. So, you know, the the listeners may be wondering why, you know, since this AR one hundred and one is basically peanut allergy mixed with flour, oat basically flour, right? Peanut, yeah. basically peanuts mixed with flour. Mm. Why not desensitize using actual peanuts? And the, the the answer is that when you are what what you're trying to do is like the the risk of a peanut allergy is that sudden you know inadvertent exposure to peanuts could lead to anaphylaxis and death. And so what they're trying to do here is to create a standardized uh, you know peanut dose mm-hmm. with a constant source of antigen and therefore a constant source of a predictable antigenicity in terms of its ability to induce severe allergic reactions. And so it allows you to sort of take, you know, uh, control of the desensitization process in a way that is much more convenient and and particularly because it's oral. And so, you know, almost every one of us knows someone who has some form of allergy and they go and get allergy shots. And what allergy shots are, are small injections of, of the allergen itself with the same intent as here, which is to gradually deplete the IgE molecules that trigger the trigger, the histamine response, exactly how it does it. We don't really know, but that's the the general paradigm. And that is a difficult and fussy thing to do and requires needles, which children obviously can't stand. Um, But here we have the opportunity to do this orally, which is is a huge advance. So I I thought that, you know, what we're looking at here is sort of a paradigm change in in terms of how pediatricians can practically deal with peanut allergy going forwards. The, The devil is sort of in the details. If one looks at the side effect profile, the kids who got the AR-101 versus placebo obviously had a lot more allergic-related side effects than the kids who didn't. But that is entirely predictable because it's doing what it's supposed to do, which is to trigger low-level allergic reactions. Um, But it's also a reminder that this is not like a a simple cure. This is a a, a cure, a treatment that would have to be supervised very carefully by someone who's trained to do this in in slowly escalating doses, making sure that you don't trigger a massive reaction at the beginning, but that you start with sort of almost homeopathic concentrations of peanut allergy and gradually work your way up until you're at full strength. And then you can take this tablet, this sort of peanut standard standardized protein every day for the rest of your life and significantly, you know, reduce the risk that you're going to suddenly, you know, have that bite of pad thai and, and, and die on the spot. Yeah. It's not, it's not likely to enable you to, you to be able to eat uh, peanut butter and jelly no. sandwiches. It's, it's really, it's really to make you safer in the environment um, in, in comparison to sort of exposure to, to yeah. peanut dust that happens to be right. in the air or somebody next to you that's spraying peanut al- antigen in your direction. That's right. And, and you know, you still probably have to carry around your EpiPen and right. you still have to take this medicine. And I would assume, based on other desensitization, that if you were to stop taking this drug every day, you know, at least, you know, if you stop taking it for a considerable period of time, maybe a week or two or three or who knows how long, that you would resensitize. And so you would then have to go through the gradual the dose escalation again. Right. So it, it's not, you know, we're not painting a pathway of simplicity here like the peanut allergen problem is solved, but this is still nevertheless a, a, a really... Right. A this is not the peanut allergy vaccine. Forwards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's very, very cool. Yeah, this is it's it's an impressive study. I mean, the 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 fact that it was a, a randomized trial gives it a little bit of 
you know, extra oomph in my mind because you got the you know, reasonable balance on these baseline factors. I want to pick up on something that we started to talk about in the last episode, which is the the, the Bradford Hill criteria, because as I said to you, they're they're not something that I I usually spend a lot of time thinking about. They're not I've I'm not a the biggest fan of them, but the the two things that do sort of generally pop into my head are are the issues around strength of a, of effect and dose response. The idea with strength being that the the bigger the effect size, the more likely it is to be a real effect. The the counter argument to that is well you can you can easily see cases where you can get a large effect that is not a real effect so for example um there's a very large uh, association between the age of the father and risk of down syndrome in the child and the reason for that is that that the age of the father is highly correlated with the age of the mother which is the risk factor that is that is the true underlying causal factor so you can observe these very large Causal factors related to, con- uh, sorry, uh, confounded factors, just because they're associated with something else that is the real cause. But in this case, mm-hmm. it's a randomized trial, and so the fact that you're observing such large effects, you know, I'm not worried about the particular confounding problem. It certainly does feel to me like this is this is this really something going on here. Mm-hmm. I do always want to put in that caveat that I find that that anything that gets done in trials, the effect sizes that we observed in real life are never as big as the effects that we observe in the trial. But, but this is a this is a huge effect size, and I do think that it it adds to the the weight of the evidence in this case. What other what other things popped out to you guys? You know, the other thing I think that that's helpful is that they also um, measured some of these some of these um, non-symptomatic effects in terms of the IgE and, and and other reactions, and those were consistent with the clinical effects that they saw, which, in my mind, strengthens the you know the, our our right understanding of of how solid these results might be. Plus, we're 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 recapitulating a, a known you know strategy for dealing right. with allergies. It's just that we happen to be doing it orally in this case with a standardized it's product. It's a much better delivery vehicle. Yeah, in essence, much simpler. Yeah. One one like totally trivial thing that that just sort of sort of irritated me uh, as I was reading this. Uh, I don't know if you guys picked up on this, and this is this is really, this is really not important in any particular way, but <laughs> annoying. So which is a, do I, tell us about I, it. At multiple in points, extensive detail. In the abstract, <laughs> multiple points in the paper, including the abstract, they they had a statement to the effect of efficacy was not shown in the participants 18, of, uh, 18 yep. years of age and older. They said that at least three times and right. maybe four times right. in the paper. Right. I was like, why are they making such a big deal about that, given that the 18 years and older were totally underpowered? And so the fact that they didn't say anything is, is well, uninterpretable. They, see, they, they saw something, but it was not, quote, statistically significant, right. but it was a pretty pronounced effect size exactly. nonetheless. But nonetheless. it was totally underpowered. But why do they keep like arguing? Because the way they state it almost, almost argue is that, you know. They're being overly the, cautious. The, the casual reader looking at this would say, oh, it didn't work in those 18 and above. Right. No, but that's when not in fact, at all. It was it. just totally underpowered and they couldn't really conclusively, you know, do anything. And there, and there was an effect. There was a and there pretty was an substantial effect. So I, know, I just found that really annoying. I, that they kept oh, doing that. They, this pushes so many of my buttons, Chris. So you're sure. absolutely right. Well, that's <laughs> Because absolutely, you're done. You, you've got it. They, they they did see an effect in the older group. But my question is, why did they include the older group at all? What was the when, point of that? Yeah. When you know, at least if you if you believe that the, you know the protocol that they put online is was the original protocol at the beginning of the study, you know that, that which I assume it is that they sort of say up front we're never going to have you know the, the the group that we actually care about is the the four to to seventeen and those are the groups that we're going to be able to enroll. 
why didn't they just exclude the older ones since they were never going to be able to say anything unless you're just looking to generate some preliminary data? But again, that could have been reported separately. I, I found it quite weird. I, I had a couple yeah, other things that 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 actually did did um, jump out at me, which is number one is so Don, you said they were they were balanced on these baseline factors, which I agreed with you on, but there was remarkably little baseline information. I mean, if you look at their baseline table. The number of variables in there was sex, age, baseline peanut sensitivity, history of anaphylaxis, uh, asthma, and food allergies. Now, you could argue that all that really matters here is baseline peanut sensitivity, so they really capture everything right there. But I don't know. I was a little surprised not to see more in a trial that was you know, a drug company-sponsored trial. Just seemed a little weird to me. Well, the question is, what you know, what what other factors at baseline would you want to know that that might affect the outcome? Uh, I don't I'm know. Trying to think of what that would be: socioeconomic status measures, those um, other comorbidities that might be relevant. I suppose they probably excluded mm. most of those, but you know, it just it just struck me as a little limited. The other thing is there were differences in the completion rates. So 79% in the active arm versus 92.7% in the placebo arm. You know, if this was a small effect, um, that would be kind of a, a reasonable size difference, about a 13% difference. The effect is so large that I think it gets absorbed, you know, it can absorb something like that. And then I did wonder, you know, is this, was the outcome here subjective? You know, the outcome was a physician judged outcome, right? It was somewhat subjective. Would you agree? Yep. Mm-hmm. Now they were, they were blinded. So no reason to believe that the reporting on it would be any different, but, um, I just, and apparently they were, they were, they were observers who were experienced at dealing with these kinds of reactions. They used the double blind placebo controlled food challenge. Otherwise known yeah, as the I thought DB- that was really clever. Otherwise known as the DBPCFC as they abbreviate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I thought that was a really clever uh, uh, study design innovation that they included. That the the, the primary endpoint was this challenge, and that the challenge was done using a double blind placebo control. I, yeah, I did, I did some reading on, the, was on this test, and I couldn't totally figure it out. But I, I get the idea. So, you know, yeah. the, that you're the, the person doesn't necessarily know when they're getting the the challenge. And I would assume that they were doing that precisely because they wanted to deal with the subjectivity of, yep. of peanut allergen responses in mucus. Yep. Yeah. A couple of questions that came up for me on this. So, so I, again, I have the same issue that I raised in the last one, which is, you know, I, when I when I see a trial that is is a trial that is sponsored by a, a drug company that's going to presumably market this product, should it be successful? You know, I don't know the authors, I don't know the product, I don't know the any of the financial relationships with the. Well, in this case, we do because it was the authors were with the drug company. But, but I, I do immediately think, and again, it's not to accuse anyone of anything, but I do immediately think, okay, is there any way that this study could have been manipulated to, to create more favorable conditions as we saw many, many, many weeks ago with the, with the, um, some of the, uh, studies that we looked at at antidepressants, you know, is there any way that this just sort of could have been made to look more favorable? Now again, Prevagen. (laughs) <laughs> or, or Prevagen, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't think that's going on here. I mean, the, again, with effect sizes this large, I think it, the only way you'd, you'd be worried is if there was probably outright fraud. But still, you know, that is the process that I go through when I when I see things sponsored by company, well, you know, for profit companies. Yeah, fair point. And you know, I, 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 as you said, the the you know the evaluation of some of these reactions at the uh, at the exit test challenge were subjective, but. 
they also did a bunch of laboratory testing. They did testing of, um, of blood and looked at certain soluble factors and certain cellular responses that you would expect would be affected by the, the particular approach that they took. And, and those, the way I read it, were consistent with the clinical findings. So yeah. it's not as if they could have manipulated those in any way. Yep. By the way, when it comes to the conflict of interest, I've actually never seen as much detail in describing the the financial relationships and who did what and as as there is in this study. I mean, it's incredibly uh, transparent, which I thought was quite interesting. I also really appreciated the way that they described the writing process, that they had this team of 12 writers. Yeah. And they say in the methods that five of the writers worked for the company and the other seven did not, but they all reviewed the manuscript and commented on it and had independent access to the data and were not pressured yep. to come up. I mean, I thought that that was, that was quite commendable. They took up an extensive amount of their, whatever, 3,500 words or whatever it is yeah. to say that. And I think that pushed some of the things into the, into the supplement. And I always, I always wonder, like, how much should I have to... How much should I be forced to look in the supplement for information or should the supplement just be there for, you know, backup information? Yeah, this is a great question. I, I, I've wondered also whether the the whole move to park more and more data in the supplement section is is could be abused in some way as a way of sort of hiding dirty laundry and knowing that, you know. Most individuals are not going to have the bandwidth. That's what we have, that's what we have reviewers and editors for. I was going to say, I, yeah, I, but I, I, I don't I, have time to read the supplemental stuff e- either. I agree you with know? you, Chris, but I think in this day and age, you know, all it takes is one person to to find it, and then you put it out on the internet, and it becomes a you know a big thing. So I, I worry about it too, but I don't think it's as big a deal as probably it was. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose we didn't have these back in the day, but you know before the internet. One thing I did note, though, was, did you notice that there, well, you probably didn't, because I'm guessing you guys didn't read through the appendices in detail, but they do not, they're, they, so they, they're required to say what their data sharing agreement is, and their data sharing agreement is they do not agree to share data. Really? Yeah. Oh, really? Which I suspect, you know, and they explained it. <laughs> they flatly said no. And they well, say, explain that data. it's because of the, you know, because, you know, it's the, this is for a commercial product and FDA approval and all that, but I'm just, you know, that, that, that you know doesn't really pass muster with with stuff i don't i don't think i could get away with just saying thanks but no, no. thanks um mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i was a little uh, a little surprised by that mm. yeah mm-hmm. and then my last question for you guys is so so one thing you mentioned don was this was a 3 to 1 randomization not a 1 to 1 randomization what's the what's the logic for 3 to 1 randomization i mean the logic for randomization in general is that you have equipoise that it should be equally as likely that this works as it doesn't in order to do a randomized study. So if that's the case, it would seem 50-50 is the, the logical balance. Now, there's no harm in terms of validity. You can randomize it in any distribution you want to minimize the confounding as long as you get large enough numbers. But I'm just curious why why you would do the three-to-one mm-hmm. Well, I, I know we used to do that too at Novartis, and the main reason was that we wanted to maximize our opportunity to observe safety signals coming off of our product. And since we had access to, you know, sometimes dozens of previous studies uh, in similar populations, we were really less concerned about what was happening in the control group mm. because we could look at that across studies. Whereas what we really wanted to see was maximize experience using the product. So my guess is that's, that's what they're doing here. Okay, so so I'll take the last word, which is that a couple of things that stood out to me. So um, I don't know why I thought this, but I, when I read the abstract of this article, I felt like I got ninety percent of what I needed from the mm-hmm. abstract. This the abstract was abstract. so <laughs> contains so much of the information that I needed that after I I read it, I didn't feel like I got 
all that much more. Not that I didn't get more. I did, but um, it was just a, it was incredibly complete. The only thing I didn't get was I had no idea what the product was. So I didn't know what it was really that they yeah, were testing point. from the abstract. It was it was it was AR one hundred and one. Yeah, AR but I don't know what that, that AR one hundred and one is. I thought that was a, a Star Wars character. It Sounds said, like a- it said a peanut derived investigational biological oral immunotherapy. Yeah, I don't drug. know what that is. But oh. anyway, yeah, it's purified peanut that's protein. That's because you didn't go through medical BPP. school. I, um, again, <laughs> they had a, a very short introduction, two hundred thirty eight words. I always target. So I have always targeted. Did I say this before? Did you count them? Uh, yeah, well, I did. A, it's not written on there. Anyways. I did not. I did not count it by hand. If that's what oh. you're wondering, but I always target 500, 1,000, 1,000, 1,000. 500 for the intro, one thousand for each of the remaining three sections. I don't know. They, am I just crazy in doing that? No, that's about right. And the other thing is, so I knew you guys probably didn't read the appendix, but uh, five pages of their twenty-three page appendix are author information. So this study had what was it, sixty? Sites? Is that what it was? I, I 66. Done, what's that? 66. 66, 66 sites for 551 patients, right? So less than yeah. 10 patients per site. It does make me wonder how standardized the protocol was actually followed when you have that many sites. But anyway, mm, uh, small stuff, point. very small stuff, and I will leave it at that. Okay, so let's move on to our second segment. So in our second segment, we wanted to talk about an article – in uh, Nature, it was entitled AI Peer Reviewers Unleashed to Ease the Publishing Grind by Douglas he- Heaven? Heaven. Douglas Heaven. Heaven. Am I right that it was in Nature? Because then I'm, I'm confusing myself here. I just want to make sure. Yeah, Nature. And the basic premise of this was that there is this, this company that is working on and has started to put out artificial intelligent products that are designed to help with the peer review process. So these tools can do natural language processing that can then go through articles and look for certain things that you have programmed it to do or taught it to do, uh, depending on how you look at it. So, you know, these products already exist for looking for plagiarism. So you can have this this tool that goes through and tries to identify and compare to other things that are available, uh, whether or not any of the pieces of the of the article have been lifted from other places or, in fact, were just repeated by the authors and and re repackaged and resold. And they've also got tools now that can actually check some of the statistics that are in articles. So can't do everything, but there are certain statistics that that can be logically inconsistent the way from when you present them. And this can look for um some of those inconsistencies and and flag them. So it's not really a product at this point that is going to do, oh, but it could also sort of pull out keywords from articles and then essentially create a a summary of that article. It seems very similar to what we already do with with an abstract, but it, I'm not interested. I have to admit, I'm not interested in the the specifics of this product or the article's you know general premise so much as I what I'm interested in is the idea of to what extent uh, do you think artificial intelligence is and let's just start with peer reviewing, but but eventually we can get into the bigger idea is you know can do a good chunk of what we do already. And if we think of peer of, of artificial intelligence as something that is going to get better and better over time, what are the things that we think, you know, eventually computers can be doing for us that hopefully are going to make our jobs easier, but not actually replace us. And hopefully the robot army will never take over. What do you guys, what do you guys think about this? Hmm. Uh, it's, it's a tough one for me because I don't know enough about artificial intelligence and it, you know, it's the flavor of the month at this point. And there's just, there is so much 
energy being put into um, uh, thinking about all of the manifestations and all of the magical things that artificial intelligence can do, I'm not convinced, although my mind is open and I would like to be convinced, but I find it hard to believe that artificial intelligence could uh, uh, eventually be developed to such a point that it would take over all of the aspects of peer review. I mean, certainly it can do the calculations, certainly it can test models, certainly it can do all the rest of that stuff. It might even be able to assess the generalizability or, or, or build, look at the results with respect to the context or the generalizability. I'm not convinced, and, and, and I'm particularly not convinced by the idea that AI will continue to develop and will just get smarter and smarter and smarter and smarter until it'll eventually cross that threshold. I'll believe it when I see it, but I'm skeptical. Mm-hmm. Chris? Uh, I, I was sort of torn between feeling umbrage at the idea of a computer doing what we do, but also uh, somewhat relieved at the idea that a computer could do some of the things that are really tedious. Me too. Like, like get rid of a lot of this, like, you know, for example, if they, if they could come clean on, if they could follow through on their claim that they'd be able to like review the statistics of a paper for you, that would be fantastic as a sort of like an internally quality control like that, that would be really helpful. But on the flip side, you know, if, if they're, if the editors are using artificial intelligence to try to decide is the topic of this paper of relevance. I hate that idea because all AI can do is pattern recognize against existing data, right? And so by definition, anything that is new and novel would be screened out by this Mm -hmm. because it doesn't conform to the, so, you know, the true paradigm changes would be biased against. So I worry about that. And I also worry about people who are smarter than me, probably who would game the system and simply design their papers so that they can defeat the AI or feed the AI exactly what the AI wants to see. Kind of like throwing an election. <laughs> so I, I do For think example. that I do think that AI is is more than pattern recognition. Um, I do think that that AI is really is going to be able to do a, a lot more than just sort of interpreting data simply and comparing it to other patterns that it recognizes. I think it's going to be able to do a fair bit more than that. Now, I don't think I tend to agree with you, Don, that I and, and both of you actually that I don't ever see. Certainly not in, in in my lifetime. I don't see a computer being able to simply do the peer review process. I don't I don't I see that as a a task that is is so complex for many of the reasons that you've raised that a machine is not going to be able to do it. But could a machine make the process easier hmm. by filling in some of the gaps for us in places that that we may not have all the expertise? I, I think it potentially could. Where I think uh, AI has the potential to to do a lot for us in the field is I think when it comes to observational epidemiology, I think that as more and more data becomes available in large databases that um, and and those databases are accessible to computers they can be networked and stitched together in real time that that computers are going to be able to to get better and better at distinguishing correlation from causation that that they will get better and better at being able to identify causal effects will they be able to do it on their own i don't i don't know and certainly they're not going to be able to be the ones to decide what it is we should be looking for effects of. But I think that, you know, uh, as we go not, forward, I'm, AI not, is going to, is really going to do a lot of our jobs. 
I'm not sure I quite understand how, how, how you're envisioning this, because are you saying that, that with a sufficiently large database of similar trials looking at, at the same sort of phenomenon, that those data and those conclusions will be able to be scraped from the world's literature and used in a comparison to be able to show causality? No, 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 no. Sorry, that's not what I was getting at. I, so we're always going to need, I, th I think we're always going to need humans to design and run the trials. What I'm getting at is the, the cases where we're trying to infer causation from observational databases that is 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 difficult for us as humans to do, but we come up with with models and we, you know, use statistical methods to try and, and adjust. But we, you know, we 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 are not very good at always figuring out what the right model of the universe is because we're often dealing with it one person at a time. And I think computers, one of their benefits is they can gain experience with and read in all the information that's coming in and look for these patterns in databases. So that might be a, a hospital claims database. It might be a, um, you know, a, a prescription database might be just, you know, receipts from the grocery store, that it can mine that information, but not just mine it for correlations, that it will get better at better at figuring out when it's when it's looking at correlations and when it's looking at causal relationships and to be able to tell us that. And, you know, mm -hmm. I think that's, that's going to help us in our jobs, but I don't think, mm -hmm. you know, I don't think it's ever going to be able to, you know, obviously do trials or interventions that are going to back up those observational studies. So a or long way to go. Witty, but I just, witty comments. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or snarky comments. Or snarky comments. comments. Right. And a computer <laughs> like, could never be reviewer number two, could it? No one is going to be able, no computer is ever going to be able to come up with my sense of humor. No. Uh, actually, that may be true. Speaking of which, let's move on to uh, our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing segment, where we want to highlight some of the wacky things that make us enjoy our jobs even more than we already do. A look at the stuff that happens in our field that makes us chuckle or inspires us. Don is chuckling already, apparently at... <laughs> Do you have you memorized that? Have you are you reading that or have you memorized that? Because no, you say the same thing every single podcast. It's more or less memorized, more or yeah, less. I guess. I guess. All, All right. right. I will uh, I note to sell for next time. <laughs> All right, Chris. What do you What do you got for us? I have a paper by Benjamin Freeling, Zoe Doubleday, and Sean D. Connell in the prestigious journal of the preceding national proceedings of the national oh, academy God. of science where i seem to go again and again and again back to the well and i just love it there it's your go-to I, I always find need something to branch cool out. it's uh, your go-to well it's my go-to and here's a good one which is how can we boost the impact of publications oh, try better writing Ah. And so this this is a this is a very short paper. It's an opinion piece, in fact, um, with a little bit of experimental data in it, which uh, makes the pithy point that a lot of peer-reviewed publications are dense and impenetrable and hard to understand and and sort of needlessly opaque, shall we say, and riddled with bad language. And so what they wanted to to get at was, like, if you were to write scientific papers in a, in the way that our high school English teachers told us we should, you know, following Strunk's guidelines and, mm -hmm. you know, all of that. Uh, does that actually have an impact on the success of the publication in terms of how many people cite it? I can't imagine it couldn't. And it turns out it really does. <laughs> it does, <laughs> it does, or does it? It really does. It does. It's it a good writing matters. Yeah, it absolutely yeah. does. 
So they, 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 they found like a, you know, a, a group of 130 abstracts of so of papers that had been published in different journals across different fields, like environmental science and medicine and social sciences. And then they coded these across 11 dimensions, looking at a whole different set of constructs, including things like the use of noun chunks. Like a noun chunk is biodiversity conservation concern, <laughs> whatever the heck that means, or distance <laughs> education practice. Like three nouns in a row oh, to God. describe something that's really complicated, but it actually isn't that complicated. Did they say which discipline was the worst? Uh, they didn't, but they apparently they're all, they're all bad, um, as opposed to things that you should do, like, you know, not speak in sort of this pompous third person, right, like right. this experiment happened in the following ways. Like we did this, yes, right? Right. You know, just say it, use yeah. the first person for God's sakes. I actually had a paper once that one paper I ever wrote that was by myself, so, like sole author. Right. And one of the reviewers complained that I should be saying we, we instead of I, I'm like, what do you mean? We, <laughs> it was just like the Holy complete, Trinity. What are we talking about complete here? Perversion. <laughs> right. So I, I refused. I said, look, there's only one of us. It's uh, me. And I'm going to say I. So anyway, uh, and so they, they looked at across these 11 dimensions and they created an index score using principal components analysis. And then they regressed that within strata of like, like how the impact factor of the journal itself is a control, but to see how many times that paper had been cited and, and not surprisingly, the, the, like the better they scored on like the, the accessibility of the writing style to the reader, the kindness to the reader index, <laughs> the more oh. the papers were cited. <laughs> yeah. So if you write boring, pompous, impenetrable balderdash <laughs> filled with acronyms <laughs> and word chunks and weird punctuations and you, you know, you don't, include any narrative that explains to the reader what the heck it is that you try to say, right, right. And you, except for therefore at the end. And you're like, right. what? That it doesn't get cited very often. And like for the high impact factor journals, those with an impact factor of 12 or more, they found that those papers that scored high on the readability index were cited 74% more often than the yeah. ones that were low on the index. Makes How about sense. that? Makes so sense. just write like normal English for God's sakes. None of this sort of ridiculous science stuff that we see all the time. It just drives wow. me crazy. Here, here. I totally agree. It drives me crazy. Oh, jeez. Like, wow. well, it's a punishment. It is. And we're not known for our writing style. Oh, uh, like, when you, when, I, you, when you get an scientists. introduction that goes over for four pages and at the end you don't know what the paper's about and you just want to, like, tear your hair out. I know. As you've done, Chris. That's yeah, a good one. Happened. Thanks, happened. Chris. That's how it happened. Thanks. All right, so I'm going to go second. And I've got a paper... That was a, uh, it was actually a correspondence in the journal Nature. So the three of us, we have to go to conferences from time to time, and we have to listen to talks by various speakers. How many, how many talks can you listen to in one day before you just totally tune out? One. One. Yeah. One. One. <laughs> and how long into a talk, how long into a talk before you start to zone out? About a minute. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, so <laughs> then the, I go uh, to the art museum in the, in the town. <laughs> so this uh, article was by Professor Robert uh, Ewers, right from right here at Imperial College in London. I'm also at Imperial College this semester, but it is at a different campus, so I can't go knock on his door to to find out more about this. But um, he uh, wrote this article, this correspondence in uh, Nature. It is exactly three paragraphs long. And it is entitled, Boring Speakers Talk for Longer. <laughs> so <I> will, <laughs> That's probably true. I like it. I will just read you the, the middle paragraph, which says, 
I investigated this idea, the idea that that boring speakers speak for longer. I investigated the idea at a meeting where speakers were given 12-minute slots. I sat out on 50 talks for which I recorded the start and end time. I decided masochism. I decided whether the talk was boring after four minutes, long before it became apparent whether the speaker would run over time. The 34 interesting talks lasted on average a punctual 11 minutes and 42 seconds. The 16 boring ones dragged on for 13 minutes and 12 seconds, thereby wasting a statistically significant 1.5 minutes. That he'll never get back. For every 70 seconds that a speaker droned on, the odds that their talk had been boring doubled. That is so, so there true. There you go. So true. Keep it short is the message. That's right. Don, what do you got for us? All right, so I, I have a journal that I could only get the uh, abstract to because our um, library does not subscribe to it. So it's the Journal of the American Society of Ophthalmological something or other. <laughs> okay, that's one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah. So this is published in 1994 by Yolton, Yolton, Lopez, Bogner, and Stevens. And the title is The Effects of Gender and Birth Control Pill Use on Spontaneous Blink Rates. What now? Really? Yeah. So I had no idea, but apparently there is uh, are two major reference works which suggest that men and women blink spontaneously at different rates, but okay. they disagree with regard to which gender blinks faster. So what they did was they enrolled 59 males, 86 females, 44 of whom were taking birth control pills. They were measured for five consecutive minutes. And it turns out that females taking birth control pills blinked at a mean rate of 19.6 times per minute. Females not taking birth control pills blinked at 14.9 times per minute. Males blinked 14.5 times per minute. So there were very large differences between blink rates in individuals in each group. No strong associations were found between spontaneous blink rates and a history of contact lens use, tear, breakup time, Shermer test results, temperature or humidity in the examination room, subject age, or menstrual cycle phase. So the 32% increase in mean blink rate for females taking birth control pills suggests that the pills affect at least one of the mechanisms that control spontaneous blinking, but it is unclear on how they accomplish that. Wow, what? that is weird. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Wait a minute. Do we, <laughs> do we believe this? Uh, well, I, all I have is the abstract, so we can't do a, a very deep dive thorough huh. analysis. I'm not sure that I do. But apparently they mounted this study based on others okay. who had made this observation. So I'm, hmm. wh- wh- and, why, and, why you would pursue that particular No, and no pun intended, but were, were, were they blinded to the birth control use who, the, uh, who the, when they the, were doing the counting? Don't know. Don't know. So, huh. Again, all I have is the abstract, so I can't right, go into more Because in the Journal depth. of Ophthalmology, you would worry about observer bias. But, uh, you know, but I think it's a, it's a, very, it's a very potential observer bias, God. Okay, very... I, I have to say, as soon as you started talking, I have now started blinking quite a bit. <laughs> so I don't know if that's something that is spontaneous, I mean, uh, contagious, like yawning, but... I am suddenly blinking quite a bit. I don't know what. You, you, you get self-conscious t- about it. You haven't taken any birth control pills today, not, have you? Not as far as I know. All right. Well, that is the end of our program. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at @pophealthyx, or you can tweet me at, at @profmatfox, or Chris at id.gill, or Don at, at @dtheo1. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. 
We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode. <laughs>